This week in our, our mailbox at home, we received this lovely little invitation. I brought the mail in. I thought, oh, I wonder what that is. I left it for Talia. I thought maybe it's for Talia because no one ever sends me things like that. And Talia said, oh, no, it's actually for you. And when I opened it up, it's an, it's an evangelic, evangelistic little tract trying to invite me to accept Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. And I thought, that's great. That's a really lovely little idea. It's not like a flyer. It's something that really looks pretty. Someone's put a lot of hard work into it. It's beautifully printed. It's got lovely pictures in it. And the first page, I thought, this is fantastic. As I read it through, I thought, this is really good. It's, it's written in a way that approaches people and impacts them and um, talks about the importance of, of, of knowing deep peace and purpose and Jesus Christ as Lord is the last line on that first little page. And then it says, check out these great websites. Um, and I, I thought they're good websites. There's creation.com and truthsaves.org and different ones. I thought, this is great. I wonder which church it's from. Turned over the next page, and, yeah, it still keeps going. Quite interesting, talking about COVID, a little bit dodginess in there about COVID and fearing that it's the end of the world stuff. And I'm going, oh, I'm not sure that should be in there. But anyway, that's fine. And at the end, it's got a lovely little prayer on second page about how to accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. Pray the simple prayer. And I read it through and thought, yes, I've prayed that prayer and I believe everything on that page. That sounds really good. Then the last page. Suddenly the last page is a lot smaller and the text is a lot smaller as well and you really have to squint to see what it's talking about. And all of a sudden they start talking about Jesus returning to the earth and taking over and that sort of thing. And That's fair enough. And then it says, If you find you are left behind when millions of Jesus' followers and children are raptured and taken to heaven, don't wait another day. While it will be horrific to be a Christian in the tribulation, the alternative will be hell for eternity. And then in big underlined lines, do not under any circumstance take the mark of the beast on your hand or head to make it possible to buy and sell. To do so will keep you from heaven forever. While this sounds freaky and illogical, it is no laughing matter. Be ready. And at the bottom there's an email that says, if you've heard, if you've responded to this and want to know more, send us an email. And I thought to myself, that's a really strange way to finish this text. Really good introduction, good introduction to the gospel, good prayer. And at the end, don't accept the mark of the hand of the beast on your hand or your head. But who on earth who doesn't know everything about Christianity is going to understand what that means? What kind of non-Christian person who doesn't really understand what they've read the rest of it is suddenly going to go, and at the end, the mark of the beast, what's that about? It's going to be bizarre. And you're going to have to read the book of Revelation and know a lot about it. And It's a very strange flyer. I, I'm thinking about emailing this person to encourage them because I think it's great, by the way, that people share their faith and pass out some information and there's lots of different ways of doing that. And if you'd like to be involved in sharing information or putting out flyers for the church, let me know. I'd love to get you involved in that. But the bit at the end I thought, that's, surely that's going to turn people off or make them go, what is this about? And start to think, you people are all a bit crazy. And that's the thing with the book of Revelations. Revelation. There are bits in there you go, hang on a minute, what's that about? And I've got to say that as a Christian, I've been wrestling with the book of Revelation for a long time. It was my least favourite book in the Bible for a long time because as a kid uh, we were given interesting 
comic books about the end of the world put out by some very adamant Baptists who only read the King James Version. You know the kind of Baptists I'm talking about. And these books that's terrified me as a kid. You might have read those comic books as well. You might have seen them to the point where I came home one day and um, walked into the house after school and walked in and mum wasn't there, dad wasn't there, and my brother and sister weren't there and there was a pot on the stove bubbling away. And my first thought was, the rapture's happened and I've missed it. And I'm going to have to live through the tribulation and I'm not sure I can do that. And oh my goodness. And what had actually happened was that mum had been cooking something and noticed in the backyard the neighbour had tripped over in the yard and so had run next door to help the neighbour. But I spent about five minutes on the ground repenting and begging God to come and take me with him because I didn't want to have to live through the tribulation. And I, so I burnt out very quickly on Revelation stuff. These days I'm a bit more okay with Revelation because I'm starting to read it in a different way. And instead of being a terrifying vision, I suddenly see it as a vision of beauty. Now my problem is with the book of Hebrews, but that's a story for another day. A vision of beauty. Why are we talking about revelations? Well, because we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark and each week we talk about Jesus and his kingdom, the kingdom of God coming near. Let's read together as we do each week. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And so this kingdom of Jesus is coming near, is within our grasp, he says. All you need to do is repent and believe. And then in Mark 10, 45, as we've read this morning with the kids, Jesus tells us about what kind of a kingdom it's going to be, and he uses apocalyptic language to do it. Jesus calls himself throughout the Gospel of Mark, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, which we have seen is a name, a title from the book of Daniel for this figure who comes into the presence of God and is given the whole earth to reign and to rule over. And so Jesus uses that name for himself, the Son of Man, and he describes his kingdom this way. Let's read it together. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And over these last couple of weeks, we've been working our way through Mark chapter 13 and reading it in a slightly different way to perhaps you're traditionally used to. The synoptic apocalypse, Mark 13, Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21, all tell the same story. And interestingly, John doesn't bother to change or add to what they say. John, writing his gospel much later than the others, must have had a copy of Matthew, Mark and Luke in front of him because he fills in the gaps. But when he comes to this bit, John must have said to himself, actually, Matthew, Mark and Luke have covered this. I don't need to add any more in there. And I think that's an endorsement for John about what's written in there. But then John writes his book of Revelation, which we'll talk about this morning. But either way, in the synoptic apocalypse, There's the same picture, this revelation of what's going to happen. Jesus is talking about the temple. On the way out the temple, the disciples say, this is fantastic. And Jesus says, everything here is going to be destroyed. And the rest of Mark chapter 13 talks about the destruction of the temple and the signs that go before it and the coming of Jesus and the end of the age and the lack of signs that go with that. If anything here I'm saying this morning is confusing or upsetting to you, please go back and listen to the messages, the last three messages. They're on the the website, they're on the podcast, they're on YouTube, they're on Facebook. 
And if you really want me to come and preach them to you again in your house, I'm happy to do that as well. But from reading Mark chapter 13, it seems quite clear that Jesus is talking about two separate events, the destruction of the temple and the coming of Jesus and the end of the age. And last week we talked about Jesus. Last time I preached, which was two weeks ago, Jesus spoke about him coming like a thief in the night with no more warning. He's just going to turn up and every eye will see him. They will all know that he's coming. And then the question comes, well, what about Revelation? Because as people read the book of Revelation, and as my fundamentalist Baptist comic books tried to convince me as a child, there are going to be lots of warnings about this coming up, the coming of Jesus. Things are going to get worse like in the days of Noah and all the rest of it. In which case we seem to have a question. Is Revelation conflicting with the synoptic apocalypse? Is the book of Revelation different, talking about things in a different way? Or are we reading it wrong? That's what I'm going to talk about a little bit this morning as we go through. So, first of all, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. It's a tendency among Christians to say revelations with a plural on the end. It's not. Even I do it. And I shouldn't. It's the book of Revelation because there's one revelation, the revelation. It's not a whole series of revelations. It's one revelation. And who is it and what is it that's being revealed? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one that is being revealed. Revelation singular. It's a revelation from Jesus Christ and it's a revelation about Jesus. Jesus Christ. Revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. I just want to underline everything he saw because we're going to come back to that in two weeks. That's really important. So if you've got your Bibles, you might like to underline the word saw. But I won't carry on that today testifying about everything he saw, and what did he see? That is. What is this revelation? This revelation is the word of God. Now, who is John? John is the disciple. John John is the revelator, the one writing this down. John is the one who begins his gospel saying, in the beginning was the, the word, and the word was God. And here in his book of Revelation, he says this revelation from Jesus Christ is about the word of God. Who is the word of God? Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is the testimony, the revelation of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I want to spend about 10 minutes preaching about the word and. Now that you've given me an extra three years, I can really take my time. So you ready? Here's 10 minutes on the word and. No, not 10 minutes, maybe 30 seconds. The word and is the most common word in the New Testament. Who can tell me the Greek word? Yes? You're sitting in the wrong place. You're supposed to be over there so I can look to you for answers. That's all right. The word Kai, that's right. Kai. We have a nephew named Kai. And I said to him, hey, you've named, I said to my brother-in-law, you've named your son, you've named your son, and he was not impressed. Kai. Kai is the most common word in the New Testament because it's a Greek word which means a whole bunch of stuff. It means and, 
but it also means also, even, so, then, too, a whole bunch of stuff. And if you read the Gospels in the, in the original Greek, it's Kai, Jesus did this, Kai, he did that, Kai, Kai, Kai. Almost every sentence in the New Testament has the word Kai in it. And it can be translated as and, but it can also be translated as also, or even, or so, or that is. And so, in the David Grounds version of Revelations chapter 1, verse 2, I would like to translate it as it is. That is the word of God, even the testimony of Jesus Christ. I don't think John the Revelator is revealing two things. I think he's revealing one thing, the word of God. That is Jesus Christ. That's the thing being revealed, being revealed, being apocalyptic. I don't know how to... uh, mangle that Greek word. But the Greek word for revelation is the word apocalypse, apocalypsis. And it's interesting because the word apocalypse has become, means, means something so completely different to us to what it meant for these people here. For us, the word apocalypse means destruction. It means the end. It means something awful and terrible and horrifying. Whereas for the Greeks, the word apocalypse just meant revealing or opening or showing, or displaying. This is the revealing of Jesus Christ. And yes, there'll be a little bit in here that's scary and upsetting and about the end of the world, but most of it's about showing us who Jesus is, what he has done. That's my 10 minutes on the word and. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is one thing that John is telling us about. The one thing. The word of God is Jesus. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 goes on to say, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. Take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. We need to imagine how this this letter, this story, this writing would have been read in the first century. Not everyone in the first century were, were able to read. Most people weren't able to read. And so they would gather in their house churches of 20 or 30 or however many would fit in the house and someone would pull out their secret letter. And they would read it all in one go. The people would sit and listen and absorb it and take it to their heart. And John says, you'll be blessed if you do that. This is a good thing, he's saying. What's in this letter is going to be encouraging and edifying. It's going to build you up. It's going to bless you. It's going to warn you, but it's going to bless you. But so often in these days, when we read the book of Revelation, we read it word at a time or verse at a time. We pull bits out of here and bits out of there. We read a little chunk and we spend ages just on that little chunk. Whereas if we were to sit and read the whole thing through in one go, or heard it read aloud to us, we would get a very different picture about what this book means. So I encourage you this week, if you can, get the Bible on tape. There's one with, um, what's, the, what's the guy who plays Poirot? That guy. David Suchet reads the Bible, but he doesn't read it in the Belgian accent, which is very upsetting. But if you can get David Suchet, get him to read the book of Revelation to you this week. You've got it? It's good stuff. Talk to these guys, they'll give it to you. That's piracy, and don't do that. But you can go to their house and listen to David Suchet read the... No. 
Listen to the whole story in one go. It'll give you a different picture about what this book is about. Because this book is strange. It's different to the other books of the New Testament. It's a different way of writing. It's a different genre of writing. People have different ways of reading and different ways of writing and different books that we like to read. Uh, My wife and I read very different books. She's into all the deep history about the queens of England and who they married and all the rest of it, and she loves that sort of historical fiction, whereas I'd rather a book where something explodes every so often. You know, a man bursts through a door with a gun. Different genres of books. And sorts of different genres. The New Testament has, has history, it has the Gospels, it has letters, and then it has this book at the end, which is a different genre. In fact, it's become so famous for being this kind of genre that the genre is named after it. It's called apocalyptic genre, apocalyptic literature, revealing literature. It's about revealing things that are hidden. And it was a popular style of writing from about 200 years before Jesus till about 200 years after Jesus. Lots of books of Revelation were written, revealing all sorts of different secret knowledge and secret information. It wasn't just a Jewish thing. It wasn't just a Christian thing. It was a thing that was popular in those days. And so when John sits down to write his book of Revelation, when he writes down, he's writing in this genre, in this style. There are hints of this in the Old Testament too, particularly in the book of Daniel, which we've covered before, the last half of the book of Daniel, Zephaniah. I have no idea what's going on in Zephaniah. The men's Bible study have been reading that book for a couple of months now. And have you guys finished it yet? Still in Zephaniah? Zechariah. Sorry, that's just as bad. But anyway, Zechariah, Zephaniah, sorry. But there's revelation stuff in that, hints of this style of thing, of revealing all these secret knowledge, the secret information. It's graphic and it's subversive. It's written in a code to avoid censorship and destruction. And so this book of Revelation is written in a way to hide the meaning of it so that if the Romans walk in and see the church there sitting reading this book, they'll think, well, this is a bunch of crazy nonsense and just walk out again. They walked in and they were reading a book saying, and the emperor Nero is a very, very bad man and God will judge him, then everyone in that room is going to get their heads cut off. But if they walk into a room and hear them saying, and the number of the beast will be 666 and he'll have seven horns and all the rest of it, the Romans will go, you people are nuts, and just walk away. In many ways, this book is written to avoid the censorship and destruction of the Romans so that information about Jesus can be shared amongst the early Christians, even as they are being persecuted. It's written a bit like Guernica. Guernica is a city in northern Spain, in the Basque region of Spain, and during the Spanish Civil War it was flattened by the Nazis. The Nazis and the Italian fascists had come over to help General Franco overthrow the democratically elected government of Spain. There's a whole story about that, and I could give you 10 minutes on that, but I won't. But the Nazis and the fascists of Italy were sent to bomb this town in northern Spain. They were sent initially just to destroy the bridge and the factory and the things here and there. But this was the early days of aerial bombardment, and they missed, and they destroyed the entire town. 
It's estimated that three quarters of the city was destroyed and the other quarter, every building was damaged to the point of being uninhabited. Guernica, this was the first time aerial bombardment on this scale had been seen and we saw it through the rest of the 20th century and into the 21st of just planes coming out of nowhere and just cities being wiped out. The first English-speaking journalist on the ground was an Australian. I learnt that this week. He arrived, he wrote the report, and it went around the world. The shocking news of what the Nazis and the Italian fascists had done in this little town. They exaggerated the number of deaths. They think now it was probably about 500 to 800 people killed. But either way, this was terrifying. This was the first time that out of the blue that many civilians had been killed for no apparent reason. And the story spread throughout the world. It was a big deal in the 1930s. And it led to the point that when World War II broke out, the first thing the British did was evacuate all the children from London because they were terrified that the same thing that happened to Guernica would happen to London. And, of course, it did to Coventry and all the other cities, and then the British fought back, and we won't go into that. The point is, this is a picture of Guernica. It could be a picture of almost any European city in the 21st century. But when Pablo Picasso, the famous French artist, heard about and read the reports from Guernica, he painted this. And if you can't see it, it's also a version there on the front of your notes. In case you thought the picture on the front was a picture from the book of Revelations, it's a picture called Guernica. It's a black and white, grey sort of painting. It's Picasso's famous style of weird shapes and weird symbols and the whole thing. And The story goes that years later when Pablo Picasso, when France was occupied by the Nazis, a Nazi officer walked into Pablo Picasso's studio and saw this massive painting. It's a huge, big painting. He said to Picasso, did you do this? And Picasso apparently said to the Nazi officer, no, you did. I'm not sure that's true. I don't think Pablo Picasso would have been that brave. But this story, this picture, and if you ever get a chance to look at it, if you're listening on the radio or the podcast, please look it up on the internet, Guernica. It's weird but powerful. It's people in pain and agony. It's destruction. There's a Spanish bull in the corner. There's people, flames, a mother holding their slaughtered child, a horse in pain, smoke rising. It's, it's powerful. And it has a whole lot of emotions and feelings and brings out the, the terror that these people must have experienced in those moments when their city was being destroyed. But if we were to look at this painting of Guernica and say, Who's this fellow in the left? What's his name? Why is there a horse there? And why has he got flames coming out of his mouth? And what does that symbolise? Why is there a light bulb up there? What's that about? And if we were to ask those questions about little chunks of it and say, what's the deeper meaning of the foot in the corner? What's that about? And we were to really interrogate the picture and really want to get the details out of it. We're not going to get from this picture how many people were killed in that city or the Nazis dropped bombs. But when we look at this picture, we get the immense feeling of that destruction. It's a different genre of writing, a different genre of art. The photo we have 
could just be any place. But the picture of Guernica brings out the full feeling of horror that that experience must have brought to the world in the middle of the 20th century. At any moment, any of our great cities can be burnt to the ground. In some ways, we need to read the book of Revelation as if it were a Pablo Picasso painting. We need to get the picture of what it's about without interrogating the individual elements too much. We need to see the whole picture, the whole story. And it's less about facts and figures and predicting the future. It's more about expressing expressing some deep and some wonderful ideas. We also need to remember that this book is written to people in the first century. It is not written explicitly to us in the 21st century. John the Revelator says in verse 4, this letter is for the seven churches in the province of Asia. And he goes on and gives them specific and explicit instructions from, that he's received from Jesus for those seven churches. This story, this book of Revelation was designed and written for the benefit of the people reading it for the first time. We can also get benefit from it, reading it in the 21st century. But it wasn't directed to us in the first case. We need to read the book and see what it would have meant to them there and then before we start twisting it and turning it to make it into what it means to us today. I'll conclude with just three simple ideas this morning. Throughout the book of Revelation is this repeated idea that these things must soon take place. So in verse 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave to show his servants what must soon take place. And later in the passage we read this morning, because the time is near. And this is a repeated refrain throughout the book of Revelation. In the last chapter of Revelation, it says, The Lord who inspires the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And so just as we read the apocalyptic, uh, the synoptic apocalypse from Mark chapter 13 and saw that there were things that were going to happen in the lifetimes of the people to whom Jesus was speaking, so a good deal of the book of Revelation is for stuff that was going to happen then and there to those people. It had to make sense to them then and there, otherwise they wouldn't have copied it down, they wouldn't have passed it along. The story, this book, is mostly written to them. There are things we can learn from it, absolutely. And the first thing we can learn from the book of Revelation is that we need to trust God. We need to trust God. The book of Revelation has God in control of the events happening in the world, seated high on his throne. And so we need to trust God that he knows what's happening in the future. He knows what the world is going to be like. He knows all the possibilities. We need to act here and now. The repeated refrain through the book of Revelation is to telling the people, get ready now, do this now, be ready. These things are going to happen right now, soon for you. We need to do the same in our world today. Not spend our whole time navel-gazing or staring or speculating about the future. There are things that need to be done now. There is a world that needs to hear the good news about Jesus Christ now. 
And I don't think we get there by scaring them or confusing them or talking to them about the mark of the beast. I think we should talk about Jesus and his kingdom and what that means. And lastly, I want to encourage you to see this vision as a vision of beauty. As we read it over the next couple of weeks, as we read through and look at some different from the prominent themes as we go through, we will see that this is a vision of beauty. Yes, it has some scary and confusing ideas in it. But when we look past those scary and confusing ideas and see actually that this vision is about Jesus and who he is and what he has done and what he is going to do, then we will see a vision of beauty and we will see Jesus. Are there any questions this morning before I conclude? For those visiting with us, I'd like to pause and see if there are any questions, anything that I should cover on or more you'd like to hear about this. Hopefully there are some questions, even questions out of previous weeks. Anybody? No? It has been suggested to me in the car this morning that I should arrange my own questions and have one of the puppets jump up and ask me a question. So in the event that you don't, you don't want a puppet popping up during the sermon, think of a question to ask me. I'd love to have a go. This book, the book of Revelation, is all about Jesus. And as we read it through over the next few weeks, we will see Jesus, the beautiful Saviour, the glorious Lord, Emmanuel, God is with us, the blessed Redeemer, the living Word. Jesus is the Word of God. Let's look for him in this book this week. Father God, this morning we want to thank you for the words of Jesus. We want to thank you for this book of Revelation. Father God, I pray this week, I pray this morning, that as we study this book over these coming weeks, we will see Jesus, we will hear Jesus, we will know Jesus. Father God, this morning I pray if there are people here who don't know Jesus, that they will take this time to hear him, listen for his voice, repent and believe. Father God, I want to pray this morning for my friend, whoever they are, who's been distributing this flyer in my neighbourhood. Father God, thank you for that person. Bless them, I pray. Father God, I pray that the words that they've distributed would encourage many people to consider eternity and that many would come to know you as their Lord and Saviour. Father God, bless that person and help us to do our part to share the good news of Jesus in our own neighbourhoods, in our own way. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I invite the group to come. We'll sing our final song this morning. I want to remind you of our faith fingers, the things we encourage ourselves to do to grow our faith, the importance of you've turned me off, Bev. Can I go back? Sorry. I had some slides there. I encourage you to to take that time to, to have your private time with the Lord, to find that trusted friend, the person you can go deep with, who can challenge you to be a part of a small group, to study the word together. Don't worry about it, guys. Don't worry about it. I'm using my own fingers. To point other people to Jesus, the mission, to point people to Jesus. Here we go. Thank you. To pointing people towards Jesus, encouragement, to come together in church. These things aren't our faith, but they're the way we express our faith, the way we grow in our faith. So I encourage you this week, think about those faith fingers. Which of them are you going to practice this week? Which of them can you improve? God bless you.